Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 402, Fire Sale. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for way less than the price of a decent pint per month. And thank you very much to Holly, Garth, and Casey for signing up already. Earl Oswulf II of Bamburgh was a Northumbrian, and he had earned his seat ruling over the region north of the Tyne in true Northumbrian fashion. A blood feud and a coup, followed by a little church roast and a post-party beheading. Oswulf was old school. And actually, his namesake, who was the first Earl Oswulf, had also seized control of Bamburgh through, you guessed it, a coup against none other than Eric Bloodaxe. Which, I think we can all agree, is really impressive. And that means Oswulfs are two for two in killing dudes and taking their seats. It also means that Earl Oswulf II came from one hell of a family, obviously. And if you dig around a little more in his family tree you'll also find Uhtred the Bold in there. This dynasty was so ferocious that one of King Canute's chief men, Siward, apparently took one look at them and decided he'd better marry into them just to be safe. And that marriage produced a son who they named Waltheof, who just so happened to be the guy who was so irritated by the loss at Hastings that he set the southern woods on fire just to barbecue a few Frenchmen. This family was formidable when they won and downright terrifying when they lost. Also, they're apparently very handy with a pack of matches. And Earl Oswulf II, it seems, was cut from the same cloth because he didn't earn his position north of the Tyne because some Norman butthead trotted up on a pony and said so. Oswulf was a northern English earl, and he was going about his duties in exactly the way you'd expect him to. He administered justice, he pursued those who violated the law, and, well, I suspect that he also got a little payback against his enemies because he was also a Northumbrian. But importantly, he was leading from the front, and when there was a crisis that came before him, he took it head on. And even with the church still smoking in the background, that must have felt like a breath of fresh air. At least for the people of the north. Probably not so much for the Normans. And actually, things in the south weren't all that better for the Normans. Exeter had apparently had enough and the townsfolk were roughing up seasick knights. In Canterbury, the church had gone up in flames and all the holy bodies of past archbishops went right up with it. People all over the place were just packing up to go live in the woods and, you know, find alternative means of income. And as a cherry on top, Eustace was down in Dover doing Eustace things. Again. The wheels were clearly coming off the wagon. And even our records admit that William was rattled by this. The situation was so bad that King William seems forced to halt his victory tour in Normandy leave his wife, who was likely pregnant at this point with the future King Henry I, and rush back to England. Which meant he crossed the channel in winter. And he was in such a hurry 
that he was even doing that at night. They landed in England on the following day, December 7th of 1067, and they immediately rode to London to have a Christmas party and handle some real estate matters. Does that sound weird to anyone else? What would make a man, even one like William, take a midnight ride and then a dangerous crossing on the channel in winter just to go have a party and polish off some paperwork? The whole thing makes me feel like we're missing a huge part of the story. At the very least, you'd expect that he was rushing out to deal with whatever remained of Eustace's ill-fated army who dispersed into the countryside, or maybe go punish one of the other several regions that had recently violently rebelled. But our record doesn't say anything of the sort. Instead, here's what Orderic says. Quote, On the king's landing, he was well received by the English and entertained with fitting honors both by the monks and secular officers. He kept the feast of Christmas at London, treating the English bishops and nobles with great courtesy. He received each with open arms, gave them the kiss of welcome, and was affable to all. When they made any request, it was graciously granted, and he listened favorably to what they had reported or advised. By these arts, the numbers of the treasonably disposed were reduced. End quote. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. To translate what our flowery monk is telling us, he says that basically William glad handed his way through London, and in doing so, he won over the English and soothed their anger. And that just doesn't seem right to me. Even if we assume that William was a gifted statesman with a winning smile, as you're going to see with the rest of this episode, what we see out of the charters, writs, and other supporting documents don't support this idea that he was trying to win over the English through diplomacy and kindness. And when you look at the English activities that take place a few months later, they don't seem like the sort of people who felt like they've been approached with diplomacy or kindness. They seem livid. So why does the official line feel like William had a nice little feast and made a bunch of new friends. I mean, even Orderick had to admit the danger that William faced by crossing the channel, quote, amid the storms of winter, end quote. And that was a feat that he claims William only accomplished due to having God's favor. That's how dangerous it was. So why take the risk? Well, Orderick continues, and he adds, quote, while he sometimes gave instructions to the Normans with equal care and address, at others, he privately warned the English to be continually on their guard, in all quarters, against the crafty designs of their enemies. All the cities and provinces which he had himself visited or had occupied with garrisons obeyed his will. But on the frontiers of the kingdom, in the northern and western districts, the same wild independence prevailed, which formerly made the people insubordinate, except when they pleased to the kings of England in the times of Edward and his predecessors." End quote. So I guess true Englishmen were the ones who loved William, but those wild and insubordinate people in the North and the West, well, they were the enemies of England and had crafty designs which I don't think they're talking about an Etsy shop there. 
So it sounds like there was definitely more activity going on, but they don't want to say it clearly. Possibly because that would demonstrate that there was more of a widespread rebellion and that wouldn't exactly paint William and his Normans in a heroic light. It's also possible that William was kind of forced to hold back during the winter at first. Maybe he wanted to react, but he couldn't. For example, maybe there was more dissent within the Norman ranks than they wanted to admit. Eustace went off. Maybe there was a crisis of confidence in his commanders. I mean, Bishop Odo and Fitzosborne had been put in charge of this whole thing, and Orderic and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tell us that those two were absolutely busting heads and building castles. And yet, there was a lot of rebellion out there in a very short period of time. So had that shaken William's confidence? Alternatively, was he spooked by rumors that people were seeking the support of the King of Denmark, and he expected a sudden invasion? I don't know. But something had to have made William leave his hometown and family just before Christmas to rush across the channel in the middle of the night. But while we're clearly missing some key details here, once he arrived, we can guess that one of the first things William had to sit down and deal with was the matter of Northumbria. As I said earlier, Earl Oswulf II of Bamburgh was ruling over the lands north of the Tyne and he was doing so in the old school fashion. He was leading his earldom from the front, pursuing robbers and disturbers of the peace with zeal. And recently, while out patrolling his lands, we're told that he zealously led from the front so hard that he, quote, rushed headlong against the spear of a robber, end quote. Live by Northumbria, die by Northumbria. And as unsurprising as this turn of events was, it still left the North in a bit of a pickle because they needed an Earl. Stat. I mean, if this seat remained open, the bureaucratic horse holes in London would probably stick another of Tostig's henchmen in the job. But thankfully, Oswulf's dynasty was as good at making members as it was at losing them. So there was a large talent pool to pick from. And ultimately, it was a cousin of Oswulf II who was best positioned to inherit the role of Earl. His name was Gospatric, the son of Maldred. And if the scribe Simeon of Durham is right, Gospatric had quite the family lineage himself. Not only was he from the same dynasty as Oswulf, his mother was allegedly the daughter of Uhtred and Elfgifu which would make him the grandson of both Uhtred the Bold and also of King Athelred Unred of England. So he was linked to the House of Wessex. But wait, there's more. A 12th century record out of Durham adds that Gospatric's father wasn't just any Maldred. He was Maldred, the son of Thane Crinan, which raises the possibility that this was the son of that Crinan, the father of King Duncan of Scotland, which would make Gospatric the cousin of King Malcolm Canmore of Scotland, which, as you know, translates to King Malcolm Bighead. But don't get too excited. As you know, in Scotland, mothers are as important as fathers, often more important, and we're not told who his mum was. So even if his father really was the son of that Crinan, 
it might not have been enough to get him an official slot in the dynasty unless his mother was also from a powerful line. At least not a slot that would really matter, like on the line of succession. And since we don't know who his mom was, we have no way of knowing. But quibbles about connections to big-headed monarchs aside, Gospatric packed a dynastic punch. And in Northumbria, dynasty was everything. And this put William in a tough position. Because William, being William, wanted good, honest Normans in positions of power. Not these dirty, worthless Englishmen. Especially not an Englishman who had significantly more blood ties to the local dynasties than he did. And who hailed from the same incredibly dangerous and bloodthirsty Northumbrian dynasty that had just managed to murk William's last puppet. So Gospatric was bad news. But William's influence over the North was weak. And it wasn't like his influence was all that great over England in general. The South was where William had the most control, and he had so much control that he'd already had multiple rebellions and was now issuing special laws to deal with all the assassinations. And out West in the marshes, he just basically let Edric the Wild get away with looting Hereford with his Welsh friends. And while we aren't given much detail about what was going on in the Midlands, William was apparently so worried about that region that he carted off a bunch of their nobles to the continent to hold them hostage. And then he tasked Odo and Fitzosborne with dealing with the lands beyond the Thames. And from the look of things, the Normans weren't exactly winning hearts and minds here. So if you were William and you were trying to hold on to a foreign land full of people who hated you and whose ways you didn't understand while all your forces were also clamoring for payment, how would you handle the matter of Gospatric? Well, William decided to cut his losses. If he couldn't give the earldom to a Norman, he could at least turn a tidy profit off the situation. So he agreed that Gospatric could become earl, if he paid for it. And considering the crazy fees that this guy was charging for mere abbeys, you can only imagine what sort of price he had in mind for an earldom. But possibly because he was part of multiple royal dynasties, whatever the price was, Gospatric paid it. The guy apparently had deep pockets. And when that happened, William probably should have asked himself why this guy was so eager to pay the fee and what he planned to do once he was in power in Northumbria. Because this descendant of Uhtred the Bold, and this cousin of multiple kings, certainly had a fierce look about him. I'm sure it'll be fine. Everything's fine, you guys. That's why, after William rushed to get across the channel in the middle of winter, the record changes tone and starts to sound like he was mostly surfing medieval Zillow and getting ready for Christmas. Because he totally had this under control. But while William was in London, definitely not dealing with any rebellions and brewing problems and just handling real estate matters and titles, like a very normal king in a very stable kingdom, well, we do start to get some hints that actually things might not be all that fine. Because if you look at those boring lists of properties long enough, it starts to become clear that William was militarizing the hell out of the South. You see, it turns out that when William rushed back across the channel in winter, 
he'd brought with him some new Norman masters to help him govern his new kingdom. And lands were being handed out to these guys left and right. And so were fortresses. Roger de Montgomery was given Arundel. Humphrey de Thiel was given Hastings. William de Warren was given Lewis. And Robert of Mortain was given Pevensey. And all four of these new lords proceeded to secure the Norman hold on Sussex through their castles. William was installing the elite figures of Norman society right in the heartland of the House of Godwin. This strategy, like almost all of the new Norman rule, was modeled on the continental style. They would exert control over the surrounding areas through military force marshaled from their castles. And the four that I just mentioned would go on to become four of the Sussex Rapes, with the fifth at Bramber being established by 1084. And a rape in this context is a subdivision of land, kind of like a shire. Where the term came from and why it began to be used isn't known. But what we're talking about here is the establishment of the Norman elite over the political territories that made up Sussex, which, as I mentioned, was the heartland of the House of Godwin. And their hold over those regions was now based out of their castles, specifically. And this was a dramatic departure from the old English style of governance. The language in the Doomsday Book and elsewhere suggests that this reorganization was either replacing or at least significantly changing the way the English had previously been administratively organized through the hundreds. And this gives us a sense of just how big of a cultural clash this was. English government had been organized at the local level, primarily for the purposes of taxes and justice. It was partitioned in an organized but organic manner, and the main focus was on farming. The smallest division was the hide, with hides forming into slightly bigger communities, sometimes called tithes. Then those were organized into hundreds, and then those were put into shires, until finally the shires were organized into earldoms. So the fundamental element of English life was the hide, the single-family subsistence farm. All larger administrative bodies flowed from this fundamental point of land, and the land was understood through food production. Continental feudalism, by contrast, was essentially organized around castles and the threat of military force that they embodied. Now, I want to be clear, the old English eldermen weren't egalitarian pacifists by any stretch of the imagination. They regularly utilized violence as a means of control, and the taxing structures and the elite nobility that it supported were clearly parasitic. But at the same time, you can imagine that this change in the very foundations of how English life was organized and the implicit threat of violence that it was now being built upon must have been a shocking and terrifying upheaval for the English who were living through it. And this shift was echoed in how William handled the religious houses as well. Bishoprics and abbeys south of the Humber were receiving demands to provide William with knights as a part of their taxes. As many as 60 knights. And this meant not just supplying the men, but also their armor, their weapons, and their horses. The violence and the people who meted it out upon the public was coming from all directions, even from the holy houses. Now, bishoprics weren't strangers to mounted fighters. 
Many of them already maintained a small number of fighting men. But those mounted fighters were retained for personal protection of the bishop when he was traveling around or under attack. But now they were for the use of the king and they were also required to produce a lot of them. And here's a fascinating aspect of this requirement. While these were the king's knights, it seems that in general, they were being kept at the bishoprics, monasteries, and abbeys, meaning that the religious houses were required to expand the number of mounted soldiers that they paid for, and they had to keep them on site unless the king needed them for something. And we can see in the records that knights were living and dining within the monastic communities, which, as you can imagine, was more than a little disruptive, especially if, to fill their quota, they had to hire on some Norman knights, who were men who weren't exactly of the monastic disposition. And predictably, it wasn't long before you can find records of the religious orders starting to complain about the situation. Because it's kind of hard to live a life of quiet contemplation when your monastery has been turned into a frat house and Sir Ralph over there won't even pass the bomb. And on the surface, this all seems just like open antagonism of the English, right? But actually, there was likely a solid strategy behind this. These bishoprics and abbeys weren't just wealthy. Many of them sat on strategically important positions as well. They were near vulnerable coastlines, strategic river crossings, important roads, and all manner of other sensitive points across the landscape. So there are places where, if you were concerned about rebellions and invasions, you might want a few soldiers who were loyal to your regime. Not to mention the fact that many of these religious institutions had already been keeping little bands of fighters. But by insisting that these religious men transferred their fighters to his control, and then insisting they keep numbers large enough that the houses almost certainly would have to take on Norman knights to meet the quota, while also plonking down Norman garrisons in as many secular-controlled lands as possible, well, suddenly... All these mundane real estate documents that I've been looking through start to make a lot more sense. William was militarizing the bejesus out of the South in order to counter any threats to his authority, which is definitely in line with his midwinter rush across the channel accompanied by knights and nobles. So while I am certain that we're missing part of the story here, we can still see the shadows of an urgent and very Norman response to the growing resistance within England. And William was just getting started. He had plans for other military structures in England and other Normans to man those positions and exert his rule through military force. But of course, he couldn't always place a Norman in a position of power. For example, when Abbot Godric of Winchcombe found himself deposed, for an unknown reason, it was up to William at this point to appoint a successor. And William appointed Athelwig, an Englishman. Unfortunately, just like the fall of Godric, we don't know why he did that. But I presume if he had any other options, he would have taken it. Because this was William, and these were the Normans. And actually, Athelwig better not get too comfortable. It would actually take scarcely more than a year for William to fix that issue and place Winchcombe under good, proper Norman control. And so the big picture here is the rush to get into England in winter and put loyalists all over the south and station them in castles. Well, none of this strikes me as something that William would do 
unless things were going a bit sideways on him. And William was the kind of guy who responded to threats by going even harder. And predictably, upon his arrival, those Norman land seizures, which were already punishing, accelerated almost exponentially. This escalation seems entirely in line with William's approach to rule. But there's another element that also helped accelerate this process. Because in this case, he also appears to have been enabled by the Pope. That penitential ordinance that William and his army received was written very carefully. And then it was analyzed even more carefully by the pack of nerds that William employed. And this work was necessary, as the specific word choices and arrangement within the document carried heavy repercussions, because I can only assume they understood Jesus to be a spiritual lawyer. And one of the most important decisions the holy men made when constructing the ordinance was distinguishing murder at Hastings from murder committed immediately after Hastings from murder committed after the coronation. And then those post-coronation murders were further distinguished from good old regular murder and then murder of people who were, quote, still resisting the king, end quote. And that is an important phrase there at the end, still resisting the king. You can't still be resisting the king after his coronation unless, you know, he was already king before the coronation. So apparently, God and Son's LLP had legally determined that William was already king, starting at least at Hastings. And all of this had some serious repercussions for real estate law. Because this meant that all the people fighting for Harold at Hastings, and all the people fighting for England or for Edgar the Atheling after Hastings, weren't actually fighting for king and country. They were fighting against king and country. And as such, they were rebels who had forfeited their lands. And we already knew that this was how William saw the whole thing. But what this document does is show how the church itself understood the matter. And this ordinance was approved by the papal legate, which meant that the papacy had also signed on to this perspective. And as such, they just greenlit the Normans for widespread property theft. And these guys weren't exactly the sort of people to show restraint when given that sort of length in the reins. We'd already seen how they behaved when the Pope greenlit them for guilt-free violence and murder. And true to form, William immediately went to work and began stealing both secular and ecclesiastical lands. And yeah, you heard me right there. Ecclesiastical lands were also up for grabs now. Apparently, the Pope greenlighting this thing didn't stop William from nicking lands that belonged to the church. Like I said, restraint was not something that these guys did. And I won't go into all the land seizures, because honestly, it starts to get pretty samesy really fast. But if you died at Hastings, or soon thereafter, your lands stood a good chance of getting grabbed. We don't know precisely how they identified the lands of fallen soldiers at Hastings, but we can guess that there must have been records available at the time, similar to the Burgle Hydege. And William no doubt set the nerds out on this task of identifying bodies and linking traitorous English bones to their associated plots of land. I mean, they weren't going to just leave all that money sitting on the table or, you know, in the graveyard. And this actually wasn't restricted to just people who were killed at Hastings. 
if you fought there but managed to survive, you and your family might still find yourselves homeless and driven into exile. Even if you didn't fight, you might still get exiled and have your lands nicked. For example, Abbot Elfwall of St. Bennet's home was outlawed and exiled along with some of his men for the high crime of being told by King Harold that they needed to defend the coast. Not sure if they ever actually did any fighting at sea, but it seems like simply following Harold's orders might have been enough to prove that you were a rebel, especially if you and your followers had some rather nice lands. And it doesn't stop there. You don't need to fight for Harold or against William to be deemed a rebel. Eustace, for example, hadn't fought against William at all. He'd fought against Hugh de Montfort's garrison at Dover, and he'd done it poorly. But that's close enough to rebellion against the king. And so, at the Christmas court of 1067, Eustace was banished from the kingdom, and his English lands were seized by the king for the high crime of being a rebel. And honestly, on this land seizure, William was actually taking a huge risk. Count Eustace controlled the French lands that bordered the narrowest portion of the channel, meaning that he had the easiest crossing to England right in his backyard. Not to mention the fact that Eustace, while apparently being a lousy battlefield commander, was still a relatively powerful noble who also happened to have an arguable claim on England. So alienating this man wasn't wise. But in that first year of William's reign, it seems that lands outweighed alliances. And so Eustace was out for the high crime of being a rebel. In general, actually, William seems to have played it pretty fast and loose with what constituted rebellion. For example, the monks of Abington had their lands seized, not because they fought at Hastings, but because a nearby sheriff and some guy named Thorkell had fought at Hastings. And that apparently was enough for the Normans to declare a chunk of the abbey's lands were now forfeit. Somehow. And this kind of work must have gotten really overwhelming, because William pretty soon began to delegate the responsibility of finding and acquiring lands to the English themselves. For example, Bury St. Edmunds was given a writ instructing them to locate and hand over all the lands that had formerly been held by anyone who had died at Hastings. So William was ordering the monks to snitch and render homeless the mourning families of anyone who'd answered the summons of their king. And this, it seems, was happening all over the South. Now, there does appear to have been some form of due process since we do have records of Englishmen complaining that, for example, the occupying Norman lord failed to produce a king's writ, which was basically a piece of paper with a king's seal on it, saying that he had proper possession of the lands that he was claiming and occupying. So we can assume that random Norman squires couldn't just roll up and take your farm on their own authority. They needed a bit of paper with a fancy wax seal to be able to do that. But this likely has more to do with William demonstrating his own authority than it does with him protecting the English from unjust seizures. Because he really does seem more than happy to break out the wax whenever duty called. And he only appears to have gotten frustrated when people grabbed lands on their own, presumably without letting him get his beak wet first. Now, like the fortifications, these land grabs mostly happened in the south, presumably because that was the area where the Normans had the most control. 
and also because the South was the old seat of power for the House of Godwin. So if you wanted to root out the nobles who'd fought at Hastings and thus rebelled against king, country, and God, well, that's where you'd find most of them. And as Jesus so often said, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a Norman to pass on the chance to steal that camel under false pretenses. Things got so bad that the scribes of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle actually wrote about it, telling us that upon returning from Normandy, William, quote, gave away every man's land, end quote, at the Christmas court that he was holding. And amazingly, this would have been the best Christmas the English had had under their new king so far. I mean, at least the knights weren't setting their houses on fire this time. And when the scribes said every man's land, that was almost certainly hyperbole. But at the time, that must have been how it felt. Even based on the records remaining, lands were being transferred from the English to the Normans at a scale never before seen. And considering how the Normans appear to have felt about the English, that meant that England was being parted up and handed out to people who actively hated the English. And predictably, the English were getting real tired of losing the family farm to a bunch of illiterate pony riders who kept calling them country bumpkins. Now add to this the fact that the political atmosphere of 1067 was already so bad that there were mysterious church fires, rebellions, and midnight rides across the channel. And you start to wonder what it's going to take before this boiler blows. But maybe that was the idea. There's a chance that William was hoping to inspire more people to rebel against him so he could use that rebellion to claim even more land. Hindsight shows us that the Norman occupation was very motivated to remove the English from positions of power and wealth. And punishing rebellions was one of the most effective ways they were able to do that. So maybe William knew his escalation of land theft and blatant unjust accusations would enrage the English. And he was intentionally provoking them to just speed up the whole process. I don't know, but every move he was making against his new subjects seems designed to piss them off. And as if on cue, right on the heels of all of this theft, William also issued a great geld. It was a geld so big and so punishing that John of Worcester would later describe it as insupportable. A sum of money that was so huge, it could only be understood as openly cruel and unjust. And then, at some point, Exeter launched into open rebellion. We don't know when it started, nor do we know precisely why it started. And that's pretty typical of rebellions. They're organic and unpredictable, and so it's hard to spot the exact moment when they begin. And in the case of Exeter, the rage had been rolling for quite some time even before they opened three cans of whip-ass on those seasick nights. I mean, average people don't tend to do that unless they're already well past their limit. So this appears to have been building for quite some time. But Orderick tells us that it was Exeter who was, quote, the first to contend for freedom, end quote. He tells us that the entire city, both young and old, were raging furiously, not just against the knights, but against all Frenchmen. They had had enough. The people of the city went to work repairing their walls and towers and constructing defenses. They sent out word to neighboring towns and cities, telling them to get down here and join up. They sent out riders to neighboring districts, 
and began building alliances. And the cool thing about Exeter is it's just a small jump to get to Brittany and Ireland. So I have an idea of who they might have been looking to ally with. This city was also cosmopolitan. It was a trading city. They had merchants and craftsmen within it. And the citizens told every foreign merchant and craftsman that unfortunately they were detained and they would need to be put to work further fortifying the city. So this was now far beyond an emotional outburst leading to a satisfying ass kicking. This was a full mobilization for war. And it wasn't just village folk either. The city was home to none other than the mother of King Harold Godwinson, Githa. And with her, we're told, were a large number of English nobles' wives, who were likely highborn war widows. And given their rank, these widows may have been heavily involved in the preparations for war, and were likely involved in the diplomatic efforts to try and gain allies and establish a broader rebellion against William. Now, of course, without a full record, we can't be sure exactly what the plan was, but it was probably to hold Exeter long enough to encourage their neighbors to join the rebellion and then wait for reinforcements to come, potentially from Ireland, as Harold's sons appear to have been building alliances there. And this actually wasn't a crazy plan. England had a large military capacity, so large, in fact, that they managed to fight three bloody battles in one year and still have fighters to spare. So if the warriors of England mustered, that could change everything. And who better to rally support and inspire fighters than the fallen king's mother and the grieving widows of Thames who were killed unjustly by the Normans? Furthermore, Githa was a Godwinson. She had ties and lands all over the South including right there in Exeter, which meant she had people she could call on. There was a very real possibility that she could kick up a full-scale rebellion. Now, we don't know who answered the call and who didn't, because records are sparse. Even if this wasn't the Dark Ages, this would probably still be a problem, because it's generally not a good idea to leave a paper trail when you're starting a rebellion. But it does appear that some people were swayed by Githa's plea. Because according to local tradition, Abbot Eldred of Abington broke his ties with William due to Githa's rebellion. So this thing was starting to kick off. And when William received word that Exeter, after roughing up his knights, had now launched fully into open rebellion and were manning battlements and seeking allies for war, William sent a messenger asking if the people of Exeter would kindly take an oath of fealty to him, their rightful king. That is wildly out of character for William. I mean, he's not exactly the kind of man to underreact to rebellion. But due to the poor nature of our records, we're also not given a timeline on any of this. So we don't know precisely when Exeter started seeking allies or declared their freedom, nor when William asked for their fealty. So perhaps this initial exchange was taking place when William was freshly back in England and was already occupied with militarizing the South. And if it was in those first few days, he wasn't exactly in a good place to fight a battle yet. And without a proper timeline, it's hard to know for sure. But for whatever reason, William asked for their fealty. And eventually, he received a reply. Exeter would not submit to his authority. They would not swear him fealty. 
They would not allow him into the city. They would not allow his men into the city. And they would not, I assume, eat green eggs and ham. But they were willing to make one concession to the horse lord. If they must, they would pay him tribute. You know, like a raider. Bold move, Exeter. And this is yet another reason why I don't think William crossed the channel just to have the friendliest Christmas feast with all his friendly friends. I think things were going wild. And the boldness of Exeter and William's uncharacteristic politeness makes me think that things were a bit worse for the Normans than they'd like to admit. But William wasn't the type to hold his tongue for long. And when he caught the cheek in Exeter's reply, he got pissed. We're told that he spat that it didn't suit him to have subjects on those conditions, and he ordered his army to march west to Exeter. I don't know how many, if any, communities joined Exeter's rebellion. Based on the record, it seems like it was either few or none. And that actually does make some sense to me. Githa, despite having the advantage of being a Godwinson, also had the severe disadvantage of being a Godwinson. These people had made as many enemies as they'd made allies. They were ruthless, they were power-obsessed, often unscrupulous, and sometimes cringy. One had kidnapped a nun for a sex holiday, and another had rumors of revenge cannibalism. And this wasn't even this family's first rebellion against the crown. And as far as success in matters of war went, because that would be really important if you're starting a war, well, that was a mixed bag, obviously. I mean, Hastings wasn't exactly a banner moment. And you could actually argue that their biggest military success was at Stamford Bridge. Unless, you know, you count Tostig, who lost that fight and was also a Godwinson. So like I said, mixed bag. And that's before you even get to the rank misogyny that Githa was probably facing. I mean, sure, she did have her grandsons, but they were probably only in their late teens to early 20s, and they were also still, you know, f***ing Godwinsons. All rebellions, by their nature, are uphill battles. But this uphill battle was already laid with traps that the dynasty themselves had set. And it seems that the English nobility who had already shown a high degree of willingness to stay home whenever the Normans were in the field, well, they decided to let Githa and the people of Exeter handle this on their own. And when the elders of Exeter, which I assume the scribes mean the wealthy male lords, got word of the approaching Norman army, were told that they decided to go out from their walls and meet with William to come to terms. And the terms were exactly what you'd expect from an English noble from this period. How many hostages would you like, sir? How much fealty would you like me to swear? Those sure are nice boots you're wearing. Would you like me to polish them? Yeah, they rolled over immediately. But Exeter was a large city. And the guys who were meeting with William, those were just a few old rich guys. And when the stuffed shirts returned to the city and declared the fight was over, well, the people of Exeter had something else in mind. The cowardice of a few thanes didn't change anything for them. The people of Exeter were clear. They weren't going to swear fealty to some Norman lord. The term stood. He could take his tribute, like the raider he was, 
where he could swim back across the channel where he came from. It was war. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>